Hello, this is Shayna Brazier with the Adventure Options Podcast. This week, I was able to interview Greg Bleakney, who is the founder of Where Next. Greg shares all about his crazy adventure riding his bike from Alaska to the southern tip of South America. Then we get to talk about Where Next and how it was created, what they're doing now. As always, this podcast is sponsored by Adventure Writers, copywriting for the travel industry. There are 4.6 billion web pages out there, guys. Make sure that yours stands out. Go to adventurewriters.agency for help. That's adventure, W-R-I-T-E-R-S dot agency. Now for the show. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to interview you. You are all over the internet. I don't know if you know this about yourself. <laughs> I hope I do not. I hope I, is it in a good way? I hope. <laughs> it all seemed good to me. I usually oh, okay. look up my guests beforehand to just kind of get an idea of who they are and what they do. And there's quite a bit of information about you out there and quite a few websites that either have posts about you or posts that you've written or stuff like that. So there's a lot for us to talk about. I think the most uh, famous story is obviously the story of you riding your bike from Alaska all the way down to the southern tip of South America. Why don't you give us a quick recap of what that story is, how it started, all of that? Yeah, so um, in university, I was a track and field athlete, and my sport was the triple jump, which is kind of an obscure sport, but uh, somehow I got to the point in the triple jump where I had a chance to make the Olympic team and qualify for the Olympic Games. So I poured my whole life into preparing for that, and I blew out my my knee um, at the World Championship Trials, uh, the U.S. National Championships, and that put an end to that career. So the doctor put me on a stationary bike to start rehabilitating the knee. And of course, after I got through the stationary bike, I got a, a normal bike and I started doing these weekend warrior um, races, you know, 100, 200, 250, 300 mile ultra races and just pouring all this athletic energy that I had uh, for the triple jump into cycling. And then I really discovered that I enjoyed traveling on a bicycle and I met some people traveling down the West Coast. So I just looked for the... Um, longest route I could possibly find on that you could ride a bicycle nonstop. And that was from Alaska down to Argentina on the Pan American Highway. And that was kind of to replace my uh, Olympic dream. So I wanted to try to achieve some other thing on a big scale for me and, and, and kind of uh, cross that off in my life list. So that, that became my, my Olympic triple jump uh, replacement was doing that trip for two years. That's really cool. I don't think I read that story at all about your Olympic dreams and all of that. That must have been devastating. But how cool that you just channeled that energy somewhere else instead of being like, well, life's over, grab a pen, get a job, sit down. Like, I think that's really cool. Yeah, actually, I, I think I did do that. Life's over, get a job. And that lasted for a few years and I started going crazy. <laughs> so that's I started. I need to find another outlet, you know. I have a I have a little adopted uh, dog, and she's a Colombian street dog. And I've learned a lot about myself from having a dog. You know, and you look at all the different breeds and different types of dogs. And there's lap dogs, and there's dogs that need to go out and run. I think I was just I think every human has their own instinct. And I don't know where it comes from, but I always had an instinct to take off and go travel or or you know do something big like that. Um, 
And it just started to express itself at that point in my life. So then did it surprise your family when you announced that you were going to do this big trip or were they pretty much used to you doing kind of extreme crazy stuff? Oh yeah. It was a huge surprise to my family. In fact, uh, I, I was, uh, in a relationship at that time and I was living with someone and we had talked about this since we first met that I was going to go do this. Um, and I, I'd been with seeing her for a couple of years and I went to my uh, parents' house because I didn't want to break the news to them that I was going to do this trip with too much time. So it was about two or three weeks before I was going to leave. I think I'd already left my job and everything was, you know, buttoned up. I owned a house and I'd like kind of, you know, put my stuff in storage and got everything ready to go. And I went and uh, called my mom and dad saying, hey, come over. I got to tell you guys something. And uh, when we sat down, uh, my mom wouldn't even let me finish. She just jumped up and said, oh, you're going to get married, aren't you? <laughs> and like clapping her hands. <laughs> like, actually, you know, I think we're going we're gonna to take a break and I'm going to go travel the world in a couple of years. And her, yeah, you can imagine the um, silence. Oh, the heartbreak. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> So did you know how long it was going to take you or did you just think, I'm just going to do this however long it takes? No, it, at first uh, I, I started the ride with my college dear friend from college and he's the one who really inspired me to, to do this. He'd been doing bicycle trips um, to raise money for charity and his mom had uh, a gestational diabetes and she lost her life to that. So he'd been really working with charities through cycling. And so we got together and decided like, look, let's do this uh, together and let's, you know, maybe you could bring the charity elements and give it some purpose. And so that was really cool. Um, and we were planning on doing it in a year. So to do that route in a year, you're really hammering every day. You know, you're not really taking any breaks. It's still, it's a great trip, but um, yeah, at the end of the trip, it, it completely changed from, from that itinerary. So this friend of yours, his name is Brooks, right? Yeah. Brooks he now. did the entire trip with you or just part of the trip? He started and we rode to Mexico together and then we had a, a bit of a crisis in Mexico and he went home in Mexico and then I continued riding uh, on my own and meeting different people on the road and then we uh, hooked up again in Peru and he, he joined for a little bit in Peru as well for I think another month and a half or so and then um, and to the very north we crossed uh, Peru and Bolivia together southern Peru and Bolivia and then he went home and I did the last, uh, I think four or five, six months. Nice. So between Mexico and Peru, you were alone? Yeah, well, you know, I was writing on my own. That changed a lot. I mean, I guess I was writing on my own itinerary, but this was 2005, 2006. And at that point, there were some other cyclists on the road doing these long-term trips. And there was people crossing Mexico and people crossing Guatemala and so I'd hook up with these people. It was pretty easy to run into them. Every, you know, that point, I don't know how it is anymore. I guess it kind of, there's a lot more, it's a lot more common now long-term uh, bike touring than it was uh, when we did this 10 years ago. And so everyone in the village would tell me if another rider was coming through. So it was um, pretty obvious, you know, when I pull up to the plaza and do my, first thing I do is I come to the plaza, sit down, have an ice cream, get a lay of the land, talk to people, figure out what's going on in the town. Should I stay there or should I go camp somewhere? Uh, and then locals would come and they would, you know, talk to me about what else was going on and who else had come through on a bike. So, you know, everyone was marked. 
And so if someone had come through on a bike, they wouldn't just tell me, oh, Joe or another gringo came through on a bike. They'd be like, this person came through. They did two laps of the plaza. They went and sat out of that tree. They ate avocado. <laughs> and then they walked over this door and they're staying at that hotel. So like, And, and they left a bad tip and they... <laughs> <laughs> That's you're, so- you're well marked. <laughs> That's so fun. And I'm, I imagine you just met so many interesting people on your trip. Yeah, I did. It was, it was really special. And I'm dear friends with many of these people still to this day, 10 years later. Um, I live in Colombia now almost full time, probably 80% of my time. So many of these people that I met on the road just randomly. I met one guy in Peru in the middle of the Andes, literally in the middle of the road, fixing a flat tire. And he said, you know, where are you going? I'm like, that way. And he's like, I'm going that way too. And okay, I'll wait for you to fix your tire. And we rode on and off for 10 months together. So he's come down and stayed for two months in, in Colombia. We talk, you know, like we're brothers once a week still. Uh, and then a Swiss couple that I rode with through Central America, really dear friends with them. I went over to Switzerland every summer for like five years in a row and visited them. And they've come and visited me in Colombia. We talk all the, fine, all the time. So it's like this global family of vagabundo cyclists that all somehow came together um, during this trip. And yeah, they've all become really special people in my life. I imagine it's a really tight group and I I'm just trying to wrap my brain around it because so last year I got ready and did a half Ironman. Mm -hmm. So 56 miles on my bike, right? At the end of that 56 miles, (laughs) I didn't want to see my bike for like two months. I was (laughs) so done with my bike. And so I'm trying to wrap my brain around two years riding a bike. Yeah, well, it's funny because um, I didn't prepare well at all for this journey. I, you know, before I've been cycling a lot, doing weekend events and things like that. But for the year prior to this journey, I was really focused on saving money and and work. And like I said, I was invested in this relationship. So I wasn't cycling. And I hadn't been on a bike for six months until I assembled my bike in Prudhoe Bay, which is this kind of oil rig town in the northern part of Alaska. And I remember getting on my bike and doing one lap around the town on a gravel road. And the wind was like blowing really hard. And I think I'd done like a kilometer. And I came back just in a full sweat in this kind of merino wool outfit I had. <laughs> just thinking, oh my God, how am I, how is this going to work? You know, I had way too much gear. And so... <clears throat> Cycling really became a bit of a meditation, I guess. Um, and, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is you sit on your bike seat and you just think about everything that hurts and is sore. So it's like, okay, my, my right side, my butt hurts really bad today. So I'm going to have to like move my way to the left. Uh, my left knee hurts now because I'm putting too much pressure on that because my, because my butt hurts so much. Oh, my wrist hurts from crashing the other day. So you go through all these kind of body analysis of what hurts. And then you start, it kind of goes away. And then you're uh, just looking down and, and try not to hit the guy you're riding with, you know, stay close behind him to break the wind. And then after like a half an hour, you're just, you just, you know, an hour or two can go by and you're, and you stop and pull over. I, I have no clue what I thought about for that hour or two hours, just full on zero, right? So <laughs> that's how what it became, it became like a daily meditation after the first half an hour or so, like cloudy assessment and pain. <laughs> and then you're, then you just get used to it, you know? Definitely. I definitely understand the meditative qualities. 
I just don't know if I could meditate that many hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you become this uh, this frog person, you know, like you use, you know, the way your body just redistributes the your weight and your muscle all goes down to your legs and your in your upper body just becomes bony, you look like a, a frog guy. Uh, so like I guess kind of a, a monkish frog is what what I became after a year or two on the bike. <laughs> the opposite of a swimmer. Now you need to start swimming so your upper body's all bulky and your legs are just little twigs. Yeah, exactly. So let's jump ahead a little bit. At the end of this trip, how do you go from this was an amazing trip to I want to live in South America full time? Where's the bridge on that? Yeah, so um, the South America piece didn't come in for a few years, but. Basically, I had to decide at the end of the trip if I was going to go back to my corporate job um, selling software. And yeah, I have a good relationship with my uh, former CEO of that company. And I think the door was always open to come back and see if I could work with them again. They're very supportive of the trip. And I had to make that decision. Is is that type of lifestyle, would it have even been possible for me at that point? And, you know, kind of like a bird being let out of the cage and flying free too long. You know, I was just thinking it'd be great. But my, my, my idea of going back to that old job, uh, by the end of the trip, I realized it just wasn't possible and I had to invent something new to do. And I'd been taking a lot of photos during the trip. In fact, Brooks was a photographer, um, very keen photographer. And he, he handed me his camera and I took my first photo where I really tried to square everything up and make a nice frame. And that ended up being published in the Seattle Times Magazine and then National Geographic Adventure Magazine saw it. And they asked me if I could blog for them during the trip. So long story short, at the end of the trip, um, I was given a, a scholarship to attend um, a series of workshops. They're called the Summit Series of Workshops. And the owner of those workshops is the connected to National Geographic that he was the director of photography there for many years. And so I did uh, a scholarship program through him and through the National Geographic Society. And what he told me, I always remember this, his name's Rich Clarkson, um, he looked at me and this was a few months after I finished, you know, I was a little bit lost. You know, I knew I couldn't go back to a corporate job. I didn't really know what, what I could do with my life at that point, where I was going to go. And I was just trying to figure that out. And he looked at me and said, you know, you're a bit lost and you're curious and you're maybe misdirected. And in, in, this, in, in my line of work, I have a name for someone like you. And I said, what's that? He said, well, we call people like you photographers. <laughs> He's like, so I want to, I want to bring you in and give you, uh, you know, a scholarship and introduce you to all these great, um, world-class national geographic photographers who will agree to mentor you. And if that's the way, way you want to go. Um, and I didn't even know photography was a career at that point. I mean, I've been giving all my photos away for free to different magazines during the trip and asking them to donate money to the charity we established and not accepting any money. So it was, uh, um, that was 2007 and that was my first kind of, inspiration to okay well maybe i could pursue this type of career what was the guy's name again rich clarkson rich clarkson i think it is so cool when somebody a human being takes another human being under their wings and just like gives them opportunity out of just out of nowhere like he didn't he didn't have any family obligations to you i'm assuming no that's just i just think that's the best of humanity right there yeah, yeah, he's a he's a legendary guy, and he's helped so many young photographers, men and women, get their careers off the ground and and uh, give them a little bit of direction. Again, he he opens doors, and then it's up to you to pursue that path or not. And we actually 
you know, what I'm doing in Columbia now, I was actually able to bring down uh, a workshop of his to Columbia now. So we've been able to uh, close that loop and go back to, to his business and work with them through what we're doing now. That's so cool. So the company that you created at that time, is that the company where next? Is that the same company? Or is that no, a at that time I, I was basically, my company was a, a sole proprietor of Agabundo uh, photojournalist. <laughs> so I was going out and picking up freelance gigs wherever I could get them and traveling around the world uh, to do it. And so I, where, how do we get to where next and how do we get to Columbia? Yeah, so I, my, one of my first gigs for National Geographic Adventure magazine was a, something they call on spec. So they used to send you a box of film when they wanted to give you a trial. And say, go shoot something. If we like it, we'll publish it. Now they would just, you know, give you a handshake. So I came on to Columbia and to do a to do a um, an article on cycling. I was getting some gigs with cycling magazines and all these great world class cyclists you see on the global global stage, like Nairo Quintana and, and uh, Esteban Chavez, uh, who will be in the office in a few minutes. Actually, here we're working with them now. But the first time I went down and did a reportage on them, they're 18 years old. So it was really cool. And so then National Geographic Adventure gave me a spec gig. And so I came out of Columbia for the first time. And that was still when people were pretty afraid to come down here. And I think I just got the reputation of the guy you could send down to Columbia and do stuff. And I, those types of magazines didn't need to take out big insurance policies on names, things like that. So it's pretty easy to get some material. And I'd been doing that for a few years. And then I got a, my first commercial gig in, in the photography industry. There's, you know, photojournalism work where you're working with magazines and newspapers. And there's commercial work when you're working for a brand. And typically, um, the commercial work is less, you know, soul fulfilling, and the, but it pays the bills, right? So it's the first time. And, and I, I was completely broke at that point, uh, living out of a car. Uh, and I think, actually, I couldn't even live out of the car anymore. So I had to. My parents were taking uh, their winter time in Palm Springs. And I went back to uh, <laughs> didn't live on my parents' couch. That was just completely, I didn't know. I didn't think I was going to make it. And just like literally a week or two after I did that, um, I got a call from this company called Ex Officio. And they hired me to do their, um, some commercial work. And actually, I'd gone to them about a year before and they'd given me a couple boxes of clothing. And I put two panniers, which is probably like 10 plus pounds, 15 pounds of clothing in uh, my bike bag. And I rode my bike through Asia. And all that I did is was, a I lot of a, weight. Yeah, it was a lot of weight. So I kind of jumped around a bit, but I was doing a, a, a editorial assignment for a magazine called Adventure Cyclist in Asia. And on the side, I thought I'd just go find other travelers. And when I saw someone who I thought would fit the garments, I would just throw the clothing on them and take the, take the photos and then see if execution wanted to buy them afterwards. And so they had a whole uh, marketing management team turnover and I didn't know about that. So they called me in and I went to the office and, and uh, they're like, Hey, you know, we saw an article about your bicycle trip and we're looking for an ambassador to kind of help um, spread the news. And I, when I did my bike, I had only two pairs of underwear in two years and they were there, the ex officio underwear, which are known for like, anti-smell, anti-stink, and, you know, they hold up really well. They're kind of this legendary underwear. <laughs> and so they wanted to do a campaign around the two years, two pairs of underwear. And I said, so you don't know about the, uh, all the photos I took for you guys and the new marketing boss, Carol's her name. She's like, no, I show them to me. And so I showed her the portfolio of photos. She's like, I love these. Uh, how much for all of them? 
And so, uh, did you go one million dollars? Yeah, well, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> it's the first time, so I was able to like rent an apartment for the first time in like I don't know so many years after being like really like living on the streets. Basically, <laughs> it was my decision. You know, it was it's like homeless by choice, but um, uh, I was able to draw an income for the first time and actually pay for a, a roof over my head. Um, so yeah, that, I don't how that got to Columbia their first, and then they sent me on my a commercial assignment and they said, where would you like to do this? We love that you found just real travelers and put the clothes on them. We love that campaign. We prefer doing that over models for a lot of different reasons. One cost savings too, just had a really authentic look and yeah. you can follow people through their travel career and see what they're up to. And so, um, I proposed that I go down and do that for them in Columbia. So we actually did the first big commercial shoot in Colombia, and I was able to hire a team of assistants. That was so fun. And I hired these two really cool women who um, have gone on to incredible careers in photography and videography. And uh, one of the things we had to do is we had to actually launch a new underwear line, men's and women's. So imagine that we had to find random travelers and ask them not just to shoot, but, oh, by the way, would you throw these underwear on? Come back to the hotel with us. <laughs> <laughs> so it was great to have two women because like you know i if i go and hit a guy up and say hey you want to do it he's gonna like look at me weird and i go hit a woman up she's like super creepy you know get away from me but these two women were just like awesome you know they just pulled it off and they had in cartagena they had all the hot surfer guys and all the windsurfers and like every good looking dude in town was like in line, you know <laughs> to do the underwear modeling and then they had all these really great like uh one woman uh, actually did two or three years. She was able to travel around the world for Exhibitio. Um, uh, and she was a, a dive master. So she's like, Hey, I didn't mind swimsuit all day long. It doesn't bother me. You know? And so <laughs> that's how I first got to Columbia. And that's how I decided, you know, this is really fun working with teams of people rather than always just being kind of on my own. And that gave me the idea to start a, a production company in Columbia. So the next year I came back and and, and sussed it out. Colombia has become specifically Bogota, the film capital of all of Latin America. They're shooting tons of Hollywood blockbusters down here now and the Netflix shows and everything. So there's really talented people. So yeah, fast forward today and we have a, a studio in, in Bogota uh, and we do lots of different post-production here with different brands around the world. And we have another office in Seattle too. Sorry, I'm still stuck. On the conversation these people are having with their families back home saying, hey, this guy wants to take pictures of me in underwear. <laughs> like, yeah, I could just imagine their parents or their loved ones saying, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Well, you know, I don't think I don't think that approach would work in any other kind of area of life. That when people travel, you know, they're just in a different mode, right? It, like going to Las Vegas, just like, it's yeah, totally it. true. Yeah. It's totally <laughs> true. So, That's and you know, so I think awesome. you know, you're kind of sun kissed and you're up in the Caribbean in the tropics, and so everyone's looking good, you know. So, it's just like, yeah, whatever, you know, <laughs> let's do it. Uh, only when you're a cyclist, you got some serious tan lines. Oh, yeah, you know, we didn't, I, we didn't use any cyclists, especially the, the men's, the men's underwear stuff. That, that would have been are. funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, cyclists don't photograph well. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. <laughs> so talk to me about your Spanish skills. Did you know Spanish before you went on that big trip? Did you learn it while you were doing your cycling trip? Like, how does that come in? No, um, I, in, in college, I, I was, when I was training for the, for track and field, for Olympics, I went and lived in Brazil. 
in Brazil. We did an exchange with Brazil and they have an Olympic training team down there for jumping. So I learned Portuguese. And so uh, my Spanish, all in the first month in Mexico and everything was all basically Portuguese. And so um, eventually by the end of the trip, I could, I could speak Spanish to get by. But I still, my Spanish is super street Spanish. Um, it's enough to, you know, do things here. But sometimes, you know, we, we, uh, one of our biggest clients now is the Colombian government. I'll be in like in a big, huge office tower down here with a bunch of government people who are all, you know, pretty cool. But like my first meetings, I would just, some of the words that would come out of my mouth, everyone's looking around like this guy's <laughs> using like Mexican taco stand street Spanish to sell the vice president of marketing a <laughs> video. <laughs> That's so funny. I, I lived on the border of Uruguay and Brazil for a little bit and they speak uh, like a mix of the Portuguese Spanish on the border there. And that was really confusing for me, trying to figure out what language we're speaking right now. So that's funny. So Spanish is one of those cool languages. I know that you speak Spanish too, uh, but it's one of those cool languages because you can travel like an entire continent. It's so great with one language skill, you can go everywhere and you really connect, you know, obviously it's, it's beautiful. Like I, I know I'm incredibly biased when I say this, but I just think it's such a beautiful language. And every dialect I've ever heard is just has its own unique beauty. So I yeah. agree. I yeah. agree. So the name Where Next, who, who thought of that? Where'd that come from? So Where Next was a, a company I started my senior year in college. Actually, this is when I, um, I blew up my knee and I, I did like stay in in Eugene, Oregon. I went to the University of Oregon. So they still covered me under the insurance plan. Don't say it like that. You had to stay in Eugene. Eugene is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great place. Well, you know, you graduate college, everyone, everyone kind of leaves. Everyone right? leaves. That's the point. They leave, they go, and they're starting their careers, or they're off traveling, or whatever. And like, I was stuck in Eugene and, and like doing knee rehab, but, you know, the surgery, this kind of surgery is so expensive. So I did all my rehab, long story short, I did my rehab at the university. Stayed there and then um, started a, a, a dot com uh, at that times. Everyone called them called Where Next, and it was the digital travel guide, and that's where it started. And then after that, we ended up doing like venture capital and all that stuff. And then we we crashed, but still retained the intellectual property rights to the name, and and I had that. So one uh, and and also the graphic design was already there. So I just need a little bit of uh, cleaning up and you know, bring it, bring it up to, uh, up to date and was able to, you know, just reuse, recycle what we have every time. I think it's a great name. It's a really great name for what you do because that kind of embodies the spirit of people who are adventure travelers is where next, like, where's the next big adventure? Where's the next big thing? We should clarify. You are not an adventure travel company as far as curating tours and stuff like that. No. You do, you do photography and video for companies, correct? Yeah. So we started doing photography. Um, now we're doing video and now we're actually, um, a full agency. So we're doing creative, uh, we're doing all the digital marketing, but everything comes from the story first. So we focus on storytelling first and then from there, everything else comes. That's Which is really kind of the opposite of a lot of other more traditional agencies. Awesome. That's really great. So my question for you is, what's next for Where's Next? 
Yeah. What, what's, what's next for us? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's been really a, a crazy year. Like, as I mentioned, we, our new client is the Colombian government. And so, uh, we won the contract, uh, to do all the promotional campaign for them for 2019 for the tourism markets of the United States, um, UK and Canada, basically all English speaking markets. And that's all based around, uh, birds. So the idea is that Colombia has so many beautiful assets and products around tourism, but what they don't have is a Machu Picchu or a Mount Kilimanjaro. They don't have a bucket list thing. So we decided to make birds their bucket list. There's more birds here than any other place in the world. And I did not know that. Yeah. 20% of all bird species are in Colombia and you can go to certain areas in just one, um, you know, in a couple kilometer range, you can see uh, 23 on the Caribbean coast, 23 bird species that only exist there and nowhere else in the world are called endemic birds. Wow. Yeah. So the idea is to um, target uh, birding tourism, which is actually a really big thing. I didn't know before we got this project. Before that, pro- this project, I really know much about birding at all. Um, but now everyone in the office is really falling in love with it. Um, and then also in targeting those people, we also want to have any type of adventure traveler or curious traveler. When they come to Columbia, they should take carve a day or half day and go out with some binoculars and see birds. So we did um, an hour-long feature documentary, like the, the BBC-type doc- documentary film. And we finished that, and we did five 10-minute documentary films. And we did, like, 20 micro-documentaries. We've done all this stuff and all the inbound creative digital marketing. And that's all starting in early January. So that's that's so weird. fun. That's yeah, actually so- really fun, yeah. So do you see Columbia being your permanent home? From um, I don't know. I don't think it'll be my permanent home. I think I'll always have a foot in Colombia, though. I don't think I'll, I'll be between here and the United States. But my dream is to kind of replicate what we have in Colombia and, and drop it into, um, like, we want to do an office in Spain. We tested it out last summer. We did, like, an Airbnb for three months and kind of operated out there and worked with a bunch of European clients. That was really fun. And then we have a small space in Seattle right now that um, we'll use, uh, grow this next year. And so I, I think I, mean, I, I love Columbia. My problem was after my bicycle trip, I couldn't move home. I tried to move home. And I just get really bored really fast. And I know it's, it's, it's a bad way to explain it, but I was just used to chaos and sleeping in a different place every night, you know, and, and having um, to deal with all these, you know, cultural challenges every day. And, you know, it's kind of like a drug travel. And so when I tried to move home to Seattle, uh, it was was a bit of a downer. I think a lot of people who do long-term travel have that same issue. They move home and just need to figure out how to assimilate themselves back. And I I just couldn't do it. I couldn't figure out how to do it. So this is why I built a base in Columbia because um, I I have an apartment here and I have a place that I call home. But every day when I step out of my house, it's like traveling. So weird stuff happens every single day. (laughs) yeah and it's it's always like it's always like that and the stories that we've done here just you know almost the same as being on the road so um that's awesome yeah that's great to kind of find the middle ground well greg it's been really fun to talk with you and to kind of hear about your life adventures and how you got where you are i always like to end these interviews by asking where's your favorite place to go and then what piece of advice would you leave for today's adventure traveler? Um, so my favorite place to go now and is, is interesting in creating this company, um, inventing kind of a career for myself. 
uh, I've also invented somewhat of a nine to five job, even though I have a lot of flexibility. So when I travel now, it's usually on long weekends and things um, rather than month long trips. So where I go now is a spot on the Colombian coast, the Pacific coast. There's no roads there. You have to fly in on a bush plane. And uh, you fly into a small town called Nuki. And their town has escaped African slaves from the Caribbean. And they established these towns, these little homesteads along the Pacific coast. And you, uh, you can walk the beach from community to community, or you can get in a canoe or paddleboard. So I go out there, and there's no cell reception, and there's no um, – you can really disconnect. And it's beautiful in that the, the jungle pours into the Caribbean. It's totally wild. There's boa constrictors on the beach. You know, there's fish that are flying out of the water. The whales go, you know, are out jumping around, breeding out there. Um, incredible birds, spiders. At nighttime, there's just like Avatar. There's all these different animals that glow, glow in the dark. So it's just, it's just totally uh, super nature. I, I think it's probably what Costa Rica was 50 or 60 years ago. So I go out there and try to soak that in as much as, as, much as possible. In fact, it, like a little story is when, <laughs> when I was leaving in the bush plane, the pilots, the co-pilot, um, yeah, I sat right up behind the co-pilot. He put his head down on the steering wheel, just in exhaustion and like disbelief and he's sweating, you know, we're on the runway for like 10 minutes. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, well, check it out. There's a dog on the runway. And so I looked out and the little, little tiny runways full of potholes and stuff. And there's this dog running around the runway. It had been running for like five minutes or so. And all the people in the community are like trying to chase it and they couldn't catch it. So the plane's running. It's like overheating. Everyone's sweating and they're waiting to chase this dog off the runway. You know, and that's like the kind of place. <laughs> and so let's see for um, what I would advise current adventure travelers. Ah, this is, I'm really happy that I was, when I did my bicycle trip, um, there was no social media at that point. There was nothing. Uh, I think maybe YouTube, or I think maybe it's just blogging. That was it. So there's a blog, and every few months I would like update my blog. And now when I see people coming through, they're just permanently connected. Especially if they have sponsors, there's an expectation to always be, you know, in your phone. And phones have the global plans now. So I just um, am really thankful for that. And I would say if you're adventure traveling, you don't owe anything to anyone for as far as sponsors and everything. I think it'd just be uh, my advice would be to leave your phone at home. That's awesome. Very cool. And I, that coastal area you're talking about just sounds magical. Yeah, it is a special place. That, you know, I just love it. Yeah, you, when you want to eat, um, they ask you what kind of fish you want. And then they were out in a wood carp, wooden canoe. Because there's indigenous, it's Afro-Colombian indigenous mix. So the indigenous have their carved dugout canoes like we have in the Pacific Northwest. And they just paddle out, drop a line in, and come back like an hour later with a huge tuna. And that's like your meal for the day, right? Or a you know, cod or whatever. So it's just, yes. That's Hopefully, I don't, know how, I don't know how much longer these kind of places will exist, but um, it's, it's great. Awesome. Well, Greg, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Dana here. I truly enjoyed hearing about Greg's journey and I hope you did too. Check out Adventure Writers if you have any copywriting needs. Until next time, later Gator.